There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Can please stand when you get that. First Samuel chapter 16. Go down to verse 11. Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O oh, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. That's us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. When Thomas Edison and his staff were developing the first light bulb, it took hundreds of hours to manufacture that single bulb. One day after finishing the bulb, he handed it to a young errand boy and asked him to take it upstairs to the testing room. As the boy started up the stairs, he stumbled and fell, and the bulb shattered on the steps. Instead of rebuking the boy, Edison reassured him and turned to his staff and told them to get to working on another bulb. When it was completed several days later, Edison walked over to the same boy, handed him the bulb, and said, Please take this up to the testing room. Imagine how that boy must have felt. He knew that he didn't deserve to be trusted with that responsibility again. Yet here it was being offered to him again as though nothing had ever happened. On a much more colossal scale, God has not given up on the human race. God is still entrusting his work to us. Even though, like that little boy, we often stumble and fall and break his commandments. We are as unlikely for this great task as Edison's errand boy, and yet God chooses to use the most unlikely of people. Sometimes it's those whom we initially esteem the least that eventually go on to perform great things in life. There's a lot of truth to that old adage, what do you say to the nerd in high school ten years later? You say, good morning, boss. We will see this morning as God passes up seven of David's brothers and chooses a shepherd boy to be the king over all of Israel. Look at verse 1 with me, please. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. 
In pro football, if you are the last player selected in the draft, you are given the title of Mr. Irrelevant. Because being the last person selected, you are not expected to amount to too much. I wonder how many of you remember in school being picked for some sports team. There's always that last one or two who gets picked, and the last one picked probably felt like dirt. I think of our founding pastor, Chris Vanover. He is an excellent preacher and a professional guitarist, but he will be the first to tell you he was no athlete growing up. He would have been the guy who probably would dribble the basketball with both hands. Instead of playing sports, though, he would practice music. Now, I, on the other hand, was a great athlete. You're just going to have to take that by faith this morning. But today, not only can I not dunk a basketball, I don't think I can even touch the net. But Chris Vanover is still playing music today, so I wonder which of the two of us chose the better path. There was also someone in the Bible who was the last one picked. There was one in the Bible, though he was not the first option, he turned out to be the right choice. And yet most people are far more concerned about the exterior. And yet we know that appearances can be very deceiving. Maybe you heard about the guy who fell in love with an opera singer. He hardly knew her, and since his only view of the singer was through binoculars from the third balcony, but he was convinced he could live happily ever after married to a voice like that. Her soprano voice would take them through what might come through life. Well, after a whirlwind romance and a hurry-up ceremony, they were off to the honeymoon together. She began to prepare for their first night together, and as he watched, his chin dropped to his chest. She plucked out her glass eye and plopped it into a container on the nightstand. She pulled off her wig, ripped off her false eyelashes, and yanked out her dentures. She then unstrapped her artificial leg and smiled at him as she slipped off her glasses that hid both of her hearing aids. Stunned and horrified, the husband screamed, For goodness sake, woman, sing, woman, sing! Recently, a group of students were asked this question. If you could change anything about yourself, what would it be? Now, of course, we don't expect them to say things like, I would like to be more holy or more patient, but probably something like, I wish I was more intelligent or richer or more popular. However, in this study, 90% said that they would choose to change their personal appearance. The girls wanted to be thinner The boys wanted to be taller, and they both wanted to be free from acne. Now, of course, this is not just the teens. The millions of dollars spent on facelifts and plastic surgery each year shows us that appearance is something that we see as very important. People are not merely just dissatisfied. Many are depressed by their appearance and obsessed with finding a way to change that. Why is that, do you suppose? I think it's because we live in a society that tends to view things purely on a surface level. And so for most people, how we look on the outside 
It's far more important than how we look on the inside. But back to our story. After Samuel works his way through all of Jesse's sons, I imagine that there was a long silence that day. Samuel scratches his head, checks his notes, and tries to figure out where he went wrong. This is Bethlehem, right? They all nod. He looks at the father and says, You are Jesse, right? Again, they all nod. Well, I just don't understand. This is where God said to look. These are all of your sons, right? Now, Jesse at this point may have exchanged embarrassed looks with his sons. Samuel repeats the question. Jesse, these are all of your sons, right? Now Jesse scratches his head awkwardly. Well, there is one more. But I didn't figure he was the type of candidate that you were looking for. He's my youngest, and we left him taking care of the sheep. You don't want him, Samuel. He's like a little hippie. All he does is lay under the stars and write songs. So we see that David's father didn't think much of him. We'll find out in the next chapter that David's brothers don't think much of him. Furthermore, David didn't think much of himself. He will write in the Psalms, I am a worm and not a man. But God thought a lot of him, and that is all that truly matters. David would later write also in the Psalms, Psalm 27:10, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Maybe this morning those words are more than just ink on a page. Maybe you know what it's like to be forsaken by family and friends. Maybe when the Lord chose you out of your own personal sheepfold of sin, it caused some of your relationships to suffer or even in some cases to die. If so, you're in great company this morning. You may not be intellectual or well thought of in your family circle, you may be despised by others for your faith in Christ. Perhaps you all had only a little share of your parents' love, as David did. Perhaps even today you are ridiculed and tormented because you are different. But remember this one thing, and it is this. Those who are rejected of men often become the beloved of the Lord. So insignificant was David in the family that Jesse didn't even call for him to come to this meeting. If you remember from an earlier study, Saul was hiding among the baggage when Samuel called for him. But David was busy caring for his father's sheep. He was with the sheep. What a great place to find a shepherd for the nation. That brings out a biblical principle I'd like to touch on. God calls people who are already busy. He doesn't call people who are looking for ways to avoid any type of responsibility. Moses, Gideon, Elisha, Nehemiah, Amos, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew were all busy doing something when the Lord called them. God's pattern for leadership is stated in Matthew 25:21, where Jesus says, Well done, you good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. David had been faithful as a servant over a few things, and so God promoted him to being a ruler over many things, from a flock of sheep to the nation of Israel. 
because unlike Saul, David could be trusted with exercising authority because he himself had been under authority and had proved himself faithful in that area. And maybe it's our microwave, instant credit generation's fault that makes people think that everything should be handed to them without having to work or prove themselves. Over the years, we've had people leave the church because I wouldn't put them up front immediately or allow them to push their own personal agenda. I've had people slander me simply because I put the health of the church above what they wanted me to do. But that's just not how things are set up in the church. I also find it interesting that when God has Samuel go to Bethlehem, that's where he also chooses to have another shepherd to reveal himself. For it is that same Bethlehem that he will send the angels to, once again, to shepherds to ultimately reveal himself. Luke gives us the account when he writes, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So it seems that God has a soft spot for shepherds, who, as we know, were not well thought of in that culture, proving once again, I think, that God loves the underdog. But not only that, you see, you can drive cattle, but you have to lead sheep or they will scatter. The shepherd must know the sheep individually. He must love them and take care of them according to their needs. And for the most part, sheep are the dumbest animals alive. They are defenseless. They do not see well. And so they depend upon the shepherd to protect and guide them. And though David was a literal shepherd who was called to be a national shepherd, he also saw himself as being one of the Lord's sheep. And he wrote about it in Psalm 23 where he says, The Lord is my shepherd. Now most scholars believe that this psalm wasn't the product of a young man, but of a seasoned saint who looked back at a long life and confessed the Lord had been faithful to him all the days of his life. David was exactly the kind of leader that Israel needed to repair all the damage that Saul had done to the nation. And Jesse and his family must also have attended Calvary Chapel, Bethlehem, because Samuel was wise enough to tell them, we're not eating until we get this done. He knew how to properly motivate them. That's why we're buying pizza today. So you see, Calvary Chapel has its roots firmly planted in Scripture. Look at verse 12 with me. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. If you remember from last week, we saw that the Lord had not chosen the seven older sons of Jesse. And I suggested that since in the Bible seven is the number of perfection, and I thought in this case it could represent the perfection of the flesh which God will always reject. Well, David was the eighth son. And what is fascinating about the number eight is in the scripture, the number eight is always associated with new beginnings. And that is exactly what David is going to be. After the failures of Saul, I think David will be a new beginning for the nation of Israel. 
Now, God has sent Samuel to choose this new king from among the sons of Jesse in Bethlehem. And in today's text, Samuel is standing with Jesse as the sons are paraded before him one by one. And from what we know from the account, these boys must have all looked like leadership material to Samuel. Huge hunks of prime beef. These guys were probably even more macho and muscular than me. I know that's hard to believe. You didn't have to laugh that hard, Judy Najar. Um, these guys were manly men's men. They were the kind of men who would kill animals with a knife and then pick the bear meat between their teeth. These were the types of men who, in the words of Ernest P. Worrell, have never even tasted quiche. These were not the kind of men who worried about being sensitive or nurturing. These weren't the kind of men who would set through sleepless in Seattle. These were not the kind of men who never one day in their life have watched an episode of Oprah. These were type A, assertive, aggressive, take-no-prisoners kind of men. And then there was David. In the brother's way of thinking, he's probably considered the only sissy in the bunch. There he was, playing songs and writing poetry and playing with the lambs. Isn't that sweet? Now, of course, we know that they are wrong concerning him. David would turn out to be a mighty warrior. But at the time of this story, he was still just a kid. And depending on what scholar you want to believe, David was somewhere between 10 and 15 years old at this time. He doesn't look like he's old enough to drive, much less lead a nation. He's ruddy. That means he's either red-headed or red-skinned, tanned by the sun. Everybody probably thought, but he's just a kid. Shoot, sure, but still just a kid. Like in The Lord of the Rings, when Boromir learns that little, unknown, insignificant Frodo Baggins is the one who carries the future of the world in his hands. So why did God choose David? Chuck Swindle writes this, The first quality God saw in David was spirituality. The Lord had sought out a man after his own heart. It seems to me it means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says go to the right, you go to the right. When he says stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. Swindle finishes with that's bottom line biblical Christianity. And we know that David had a heart of obedience for God. Listen to this beautiful expression in Psalm 40, verse 8. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. Or Psalm 119:11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Please note where he writes, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, David's desire was to be obedient. He purposed to find ways to discover God's will and then to do it. Now, those who know some of David's life might ask at this point, if he was so obedient then, why did he commit adultery and even murder? As I've often said, the one thing that I love about Scripture is the Bible doesn't gloss over the errors. It shows us its heroes, warts and all. But even in that experience, you see David's sensitivity to his primary desire to obey God. 
Unlike Saul, who tried to whitewash and cover his sin, David was crushed because of his sin, and he wept and he pleaded for mercy. Go home and read Psalm 51 this afternoon. It's like barging into a room and unexpectedly finding someone there pouring out their confessions to the Lord for their sin. You almost feel like you're an intruder. David is pleading for forgiveness because he is so distraught that he has disobeyed the commands of his God. He hated the sin because he knew that he had hurt God. So we see that God, are, God is not looking for hearts that are perfect, but hearts that are striving to do his will. David's family didn't think too much of him. And yet, who did God choose? When David walked in the door, God told Samuel, that's the one. He's the one I have chosen. God wanted David to be king. David, the harp-playing songwriter, the shepherd boy, the eighth son of eight sons in a culture who always gave preference to the oldest. Alan Redpath writes, The basis of God's choice is contrary to all this. When he would build a man of God, he looks for different timber. As the Apostle Paul expressed it in writing the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.26, he writes, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man can boast before God. Did you catch that description of God's heroes? Foolish, weak, and despised. Whereas the message paraphrases it. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the biggest and brightest among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? He chooses these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. It may surprise you and even liberate you to realize God does not enlist the majority of his servants from the ranks of the wise, the mighty, the noble, or the beautiful. Martin Luther was an obscure monk stricken by low confidence. C.H. Spurgeon battled depression his entire life, and Billy Graham was dismissed from Bible college. These people were not used by God because they were spectacular. They were simply used by a spectacular God. So where is that majority that God so eagerly calls and uses? It's the rest of us. You and me who are the nobility of God's nobodies. God chooses unlikely people to accomplish his purposes so his power can be manifest in their weakness. God uses people who will depend upon his power rather than upon their own strength and abilities. They are humbled then knowing it is not them. It was God. And so they are driven back to God in worship and prayer because what he has done. 
After Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and John had been teaching in the temple courts. And people took notice, even the religious leaders. In Acts 4.13 it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When amazing things happen, God gets the glory rather than us. So people will look at us and say, how in the world are they able to do that? How can they maintain their joy in the midst of all those trials and tribulations? And the only conclusion they will be able to come to is, it must be God. And like in the book of Acts, they will recognize that we too have been with Jesus. God wants people to be amazed at his ability not our ability. When a great God uses mundane instruments, he then gets all the glory. Picture a jungle. A surgeon is there. But instead of a modern operating room, all he has is a Swiss army knife. Now, if he does successful brain surgery with that knife, he will be honored and applauded over any doctor with full facilities and a staff at his disposal. So if there are limited resources, the glory of the worker shines all the more. And so it is with God. The skill of the one doing the work is more dramatic when God is confined by using the common. But regardless of all that, had an election been held in Israel to choose a replacement for King Saul, it's unlikely that the people would have ever chosen David. But he was God's first choice. Psalm 78:70 says, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young he brought him, to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. It's very likely that David still had the smell of goats and sheep upon him, but he was still chosen. And you also might have just came out of your original sin. Or you may have been saved for years and are coming out of a recent sin. And you may still have on you the stench in whatever you've been involved in. But whatever you do, don't go back in it because you are destined to be more than that because you have been chosen by God to represent him in this sin-sick world. David was a nobody that nobody noticed. But God knew him because God doesn't look at the surface. And he saw in David a man after his own heart. What does God see in you this morning? Now that can be a convicting question, but can also be very encouraging. There is a story about Michelangelo walking down the streets of Florence, Italy. One day he saw a block of marble laying in an empty lot. Inquiring about it, he heard the owner say, It's worthless now, good for nothing but paving blocks. Shaking his head, the sculptor and artist replied, Send it to my studio. There's something special imprisoned in that stone. Later, the master sculptor chiseled away at the rejected stone and created the masterpiece, David, that is still celebrated throughout the world today. And you may not think that you look like much, and you may not think that you're very significant. And to be honest, hardly any of us will ever make it as celebrities or even the national top ten list in anything. But what a glorious thing when the master of all things takes a life that is scarred with sin 
and turns it into a masterpiece for him. You are significant. God created you. He sent his one and only son to die for you. Now he wants to use you in a mighty way, but only if we will yield our hearts wholly to him. Look at verse 13, please, for a couple quick comments. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. There's something here I don't want us to miss this morning. At this point, David is anointed as king, but Saul is still on the throne and will be for many more years. The Hebrew word there for anointed, though, is where we get the word Messiah, as in Jesus the Messiah. And in the same way, we all know that Jesus is the anointed king. And yet at this present time, the ruler of this world is not Jesus. Jesus will rule and reign on this planet someday. But in the meantime, a usurper is on the throne. Jesus calls the devil the prince of this world, John 14:30, And Paul calls him the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4:4. 4, 4. So we could say that David is anointed but he's not yet enthroned. And so too with Christ. The major difference is Jesus is allowing Satan to remain in power over the world until the end of time. Always remember, Satan has no power except the power that God allows him to suit his own eternal and sovereign purpose. So if Jesus is king of kings, why is the world so crazy? Why are there so many problems, people would ask us? The answer to that, according to God's perfect plan, is Jesus is anointed, but he's not yet enthroned. And please also notice back when Saul was anointed back in chapter 10, it was with a small vial of oil. David, on the other hand, was anointed with a big flask of oil. Why is that? I think it's because oil in the scripture is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and David is a picture of the future anointed one, the Christos, Jesus who would be anointed with the oil of gladness more than any of his brethren, Hebrews 1.9. So we see that God is in the business of choosing ordinary people in order to serve his purposes, so he chose David. I think it's pretty obvious from this account that David is the most ordinary and insignificant person involved in this process of anointing a new king that day. After all, Samuel was a prophet of God. Even Jesse has significance as the father of eight boys. David's brothers were all bigger and stronger than he was. But God chose David. In closing, notice again that Samuel anoints David in the midst of his brethren. David will eventually be anointed three separate times. The first time is here. The second time is in Samuel 2-4 when he is anointed over the tribe of Judah. And the third time is 2 Samuel 5 when he is anointed as king over all of Israel. David is not chosen to immediately replace Saul. He is placed in a kind of internship to be groomed for the kingdom that will not be his for several more years. I wonder if you've ever been there. Do you feel like there is something that God has called you to do that has not yet come to fruition? Sometimes a person will think that they are anointed for ministry. Their mother might even agree. A few others might even recognize anointing, and they wonder why everyone else doesn't see it. Most likely it's because it's simply not time. There isn't an unfolding of God's plan for a man or a woman in service and ministry. You cannot rush it. 
Anointing is recognized by others, I think, in stages. It simply doesn't happen quickly. And by the way, sometimes being anointed of God can really make your life very interesting. Come back next week and I'll explain. Father, we want that heart of David this morning. Like David, I know, Lord, that we've all failed. We're all going to fail in the future at some point. But we want the desire of our heart, even though it will be imperfect. We want the desire of our heart to be pleasing to you. And I pray that where that is not the case, you would make that the case this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion.